Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Even though we are technically still in the book of Daniel, after we get past Daniel in the lion's den, a story that most people are familiar with when they think of the book of Daniel, that's the first place their Sunday school memory goes, but once we get through Daniel in the lion's den, then we're going to get into the more eschatological parts of the book of Daniel. And when we get into the more eschatological parts, it's going to become obvious that I am approaching those things from a very premillennial view. But you will see why I find it impossible to read the things that Daniel has said in any other than a premillennial view because he is talking and has talked in the early chapters about physical, literal, genuine kingdoms that have occurred on planet Earth in human history. And then he has predicted a kingdom to come, a ten-toed, loose confederacy of ten nations, during which Christ is going to come back, and then he's going to shatter the toe kingdoms and all the other previous kingdoms and the head of gold, and then he's going to establish his kingdom of stone, the kingdom that is going to last forever, and all the other kingdoms are going to be crushed and blow away like dust. So the fact that all the previous kingdoms are literal, physical, genuine, earthly kingdoms leads me to believe and to be convinced that the kingdom of Christ, when it comes, is going to be an actual, literal, genuine, physical, earthly kingdom because Daniel does not make, nor does any biblical author anywhere make, a distinction between the Egyptian kingdom and the Assyrian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom and the Grecian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Roman kingdom and the Ten-Toed kingdom and then the kingdom of Christ. There's no distinguishing characteristic that would let you know that suddenly he's not talking about physical earthly kingdoms. He's talking about a heavenly kingdom or an allegorical kingdom or a kingdom that started in some spiritual sense when Christ died on the cross that will be apparently coming to its fruition when Christ returns. You don't find anything like that in the Bible. And on Sunday, in our annual communion service, I talked at some great length about the kingdom. If someone is listening to this message tonight sometime in the future and you want to find that message, it's actually on our site in the miscellaneous folder. If you scroll all the way down, you'll find our homecoming messages, and you'll find Alex's and Tom's and my messages from this past weekend. And you'll also find a music file of all the music from this weekend because everybody sang and played so well. So all of that is on our website I'm not going to review all of the Old Testament stuff that we looked at on Sunday morning, but I'm not done talking about the kingdom. And so tonight we're going to talk about New Testament attestations, New Testament evidence of the coming earthly physical kingdom. 
Now, on Sunday morning, I started with the Abrahamic covenant. And I started there on purpose because I thought that if I talked fast enough and we covered enough ground that we would get to the New Testament references to the Abrahamic covenant. But apparently, I couldn't even talk fast enough because there's just so much material about the kingdom that once we got to the first of the New Testament statements about the kingdom, I knew that we just needed to move on into the communion service, and so we did. Knowing all the time, this is one of the great advantages that I have here at GCA, knowing all the time that there is always next week, and I can come back to this, and I can pick up and keep going where I left off. So tonight, we're going to start talking about the New Testament predictions of the kingdom to come, and then maybe, just maybe, we'll get to Daniel tonight. If we don't, we'll get to Daniel in the lion's den next week. And then we're going to get into all the eschatological portions. And when we do, you're going to see all the references to the kingdom come up again. And you're going to see the same thing that I keep saying over and over again. You're going to see that earthly, physical, genuine kingdoms are finally culminating in Christ's own physical, earthly, literal, genuine kingdom. And so I know that our detractors out there and our critics will say, well, Jim now is preaching dispensationalism. I'm not preaching anything other than what I've always preached, but I'm not defending dispensationalism or premillennialism or plank of woodism. Okay, I am defending that. But what I'm defending is what the Bible actually says, because all of the other systems, whether it's amillennialism, whether it's covenantalism, whether it's dispensationalism, these are all systems of interpretations, hermeneutical systems that are then imposed on the Bible. And then people read the Bible through the lens of their system, and as often as not, they end up having to say, well, the Bible cannot mean that exactly because that doesn't work with my system. And so what we've tried to do here for the last 15 years is just dispense with all that, get rid of all the systems and the hermeneutical approaches and traditions, and just read what the Bible says, which is why the approach here for the last 15 years has been, let's read the Bible week by week by week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, find out what it says. And as we've been doing that, we have found out over time that many of our assumptions and many of our systems just don't work. I didn't know all this. I didn't even have to forget it. Good. Good for you. You have nothing to forget then. I read Revelation and it said the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. I didn't have anything to stop. Exactly. You had no reason to think anything else. Yes, sir, Alex. In the Church of Christ, the kingdom was equated with the church. Right. And, uh, As was everything. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so that was kind of a beginning of a, a shift in my thinking when I first got exposed to it. But um, is this something, you said something the other day that made me think that just lately you've really got like a, I don't know if it's a renewed vigor about this. Or something. Yeah, I said I'm, I'm lately obsessed with the kingdom. Yeah, tell me, well, tell us a little bit about that. What do you think's worth um, The genuine desire to see Christ return. And part and parcel of his return is the establishment of his kingdom on the planet. 
uh, there is a, a great fervor in the church toward the idea of Christ coming to get us, take us to heaven, the rapture, all that. Okay, that sounds like a good thing, and I'm all for it. I, I would like to go through the instantaneous change, the new body thing, that sounds good. If I end up dying and coming up out of my grave, great experience. But the church far too often truncates the return of Christ to just that event, which again is a church thing that eliminates Israel from the equation and says that Christ is only coming back for me. Once he got to me, he's satisfied and he's happy and it's all about me. But the reality all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, and we're going to see it several times tonight, is that ever since the Abrahamic covenant, all the way until the new Jerusalem, it's all about Israel. Mm -hmm. The whole Bible is about Israel. It just is. And then we as Gentiles are adopted into the family of God. We are by grace through Christ. We are brought to God and we are given the gifts of faith and repentance under the new covenant. But there's still this unconditional promise from God, the Abrahamic covenant, that is still waiting to be satisfied. And the New Testament authors still talk about it and still refer to it and are still expecting the culmination of it. And the more that you get a proper Israelology in your head, the more you're able to read the Bible for what it does say and not have to impose a system on it. And the more you can understand, I, I, I think the more that you comprehend that the promises made to Israel weren't made to you, the more you can understand when I say the word grace. The more you can say, wow, these, these aren't even my covenants, my promises, my prophets, my, not even my Old Testament. This is all Israel stuff. And yet I got included. Okay, well, now that's grace upon grace. And so I, it has really increased my understanding of grace. I really want to see Christ come back and do everything he said he was going to do. That includes the new body. That includes the catching away of the church. That includes the establishment of the kingdom. And in this current world environment, in this political environment, and with the increase of madness, wildness, every day it seems we read of more people being gunned down in, in this current sinful environment I can't wait for the Prince of Peace to come and establish a kingdom wherein dwells righteousness that just seems so attractive to me that I obsess over it that was the long answer to your short question All right, I went to a country church and we didn't have those big preachers we just read the Bible and we said what the Bible said is what it said how dare you and when I, read, we, I, I didn't read the Old Testament very much but when I read John 10, 35, it says the scripture cannot be broken. Yeah. And do you know how many folks don't really pay attention to what that's saying? It's saying something very specific, that the word of God will not be broken. And yet there are people... Yeah, and there are people in favor of theological systems breaking it constantly. Yes, Steve, your hand was up. I don't know how many times I heard Don Tyndall say this over the last 10 years. He referred to one of his professors 
who, as I recall, studied the Bible eight hours a day. Besides teaching his classes, eating meals, etc., he was in the scriptures a long time every day. Slacker. Yeah. Yeah. And he made he made the comment every time I think I have everything in its place, I read another verse that doesn't fit in what everything in all the the system that I have put together. Yeah. And I have to start over again. Yeah. And that is where we all ought to be because we're not going to exhaust right. God. I think we're it's the natural it's the natural tendency. Have you ever noticed if you're looking at a design in anything, let's say the wood grain design in those cabinets, that it's just our natural tendency to start seeing shapes that we can identify. We say that looks like Florida. If you go outside and you look at clouds, you know, you'll say, oh, I see a penguin, or I see a face, or I look, it's Idaho, or because we just have a tendency to want to identify things that we comprehend. And when we come to the Bible, we're really reading about a God who is incomprehensible. And so we have a tendency to, to put him into boxes and shapes that we can comprehend. And I understand the tendency. But when we do that, you're right, there will be some verse somewhere where you go, well, that's not like the God that I've created. I've created a God in my mind that fits my parameters. I can understand him. And then he does something I don't understand. I know the first time that I read when Isaiah talks about God using the Assyrians to punish Israel, but then he's going to punish Assyria for the haughtiness with which they attacked Israel because Israel are God's people, but he used Assyria to punish them and then punish them for the way they punished Israel. I, I, I mean, my, my brain had to be duct taped closed. It was just too much for me to comprehend because the, the Lutheran God I had grown up with fit very neatly into categories. And a God who is so sovereign that he can do genuinely whatever he wants. Here, I'll give you another example. How many folks have you seen through the years attempt to make Romans 9, more fair. <laughs> Love less. Absolutely. He doesn't hate Esau. He just loves him less. And he knew what Esau was going to do later, even though Paul specifically said, two children in a womb, they haven't done any righteousness, they haven't done any evil. So it's not about what they're going to do. But anyway, people say, it's got to be fair of God. God has to be like we are, and so they try to make it more fair. And then what do they do with Paul getting to the end of it and saying, so now you're going to ask me if everybody has only done what God predestined they would do, how can he yet find fault with that? In other words, if you make Romans 9 more fair, you'll never arrive at Paul's conclusion. And Paul's conclusion is God is so sovereign that he can make everybody do what he wants them to do and then judge them for doing it. And that was when I, I was, I thought, well, either I'm going to have to preach the God of this Bible or I have to preach someone I've made up.
God could have just taken those people out that he's going to save as they Sure, die. sure he could. But now the other people can't say, you didn't have your chance. God could have done a whole lot of things. He could have made my job a whole lot easier. <laughs> he could have made the elect really obvious. You know, like they could have a spike coming out of their head or something. And, a halo. Oh, a halo. I'm sorry. I went with spike. Yeah, but I mean, if I could find those people, then I could say, oh, I'm supposed to preach to you. Because through the years, I've preached to plenty of people who I thought, oh, they get it. They're there. They're in. They're, and I look around, and they're gone. And I think, these people were so committed. They seemed so, but they, they just had no deep root, and they wandered off. And, and I think, why do you do this to me, God? Why do you get my hopes up? Then I read Paul saying that the same word brings life to some and death to others. That when you preach that word, it has the scent of life unto life and it has the scent of death unto death. And then Paul says, and who's adequate for these things? Well, I get that because I feel that all the time. Like, who's adequate to preach a word that will both save and condemn? I'm not in the condemning business. I'm a nice guy. I want people to like me. I want everybody to love me. I want everybody to go, here comes Jim. Yay, it's a party. And <laughs> instead, they go, here comes Jim. He's going to bring that up again. So, again, long answer to a short question. Uh, the God of the Bible simply is not like our systems. And so we simply have to let him say about himself what he's going to say about himself and what he has said about himself. And if we don't like it or if it's contrary to our system or if it's contrary to our theology, then, then we're wrong. And we have to go back and rethink again and reexamine the evidence. All right, we've got a lot of stuff. So uh, what we're talking about starts at the Abrahamic covenant. It is all about Israel. Jesus, get it right, came to the planet about Israel because there were promises made to Israel that Jesus came to satisfy, not the least of which is that the law belonged to Israel. There was only Israel at Mount Sinai. There were no Australians. There were no Eskimos. There were no pygmies from Borneo. There was nobody at the foot of Mount Sinai getting a covenant that day but Israel. Not even Americans, and certainly not the church. And so God made a covenant specifically with Israel, and Jesus came to satisfy that covenant and take it all the way and nail it to his cross, all those words that Paul uses, so that the people who were under that law, who were then under the curse that came with that law, could be redeemed. And that language of the redemption that Christ proffered for his people, these are Israelite promises that we, thank God, ended up included in, but far too much of the church and theological circles today say, well, now that we're here, now that the church is here, now that we're saved, God's done with Israel. I'm going to show you tonight he's not, and that the language continues to say kingdom. There's a kingdom coming, and the kingdom belongs to Israel. Now, the natural question is, well, then, are we going to participate in the kingdom? I think since Jude writes, 
that he returns with the ten thousands of his saints who are wearing white robes. And if you get to Revelation 19, you see that we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're given white robes, which is the righteousness of the saints. So if we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're the saints, we get the white robes. And then he returns with ten thousands of his saints wearing white robes. I can do the math. I can say, okay, then that's we're probably coming back with him. So I would say that we have some kind of, though the Bible doesn't tell us detail about it, we have some kind of participation in the kingdom. We certainly have participation in the new Jerusalem. But what all that's going to be, we don't know yet. Where should we start? We, we talked on Sunday about Mark 11, 9, and 10, that when Jesus came in, the triumphal entry as he was entering into Jerusalem, that the nomenclature that the people assigned to him was very specific. They called him Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David. And that was very, very important because the Davidic covenant said that it was a descendant of David that was going to sit on the throne of David, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that language is very, very consistent. The Jews, when they saw the Messiah riding into Jerusalem, recognized him as the Messiah, the son of David, and they expected him to establish the kingdom. And they tried to make him king by force. But he didn't come the first time to establish the kingdom. He came the first time to die, to redeem his people, to go away, to prepare a place for us. And then he's going to return to establish the kingdom. There are several, several references in the four Gospels to particular Jews like Joseph of Arimathea who are identified by the specific language that they were waiting for the kingdom of God. And after everything that we read on Sunday about the kingdom of God and the promises from the prophets of Israel and all of that forward looking to the kingdom, when you get to the Gospels and you read that people were expecting the kingdom of God, they were expecting the kingdom that is predicted by all the prophets, which all the prophets, get this right, all the prophets, have I emphasized the all part enough yet? All the prophets predict an earthly, physical, literal, genuine kingdom. Not a one of them ever says that it's a spiritual or a uh, allegorical kingdom. They are all expecting the kingdom on earth because, think about it from Israel's perspective, they once were a kingdom. They once had the glory that the New Testament authors talk about as the former glory that Christ is coming back to restore. They once were a kingdom so great that when Solomon was king, even the queen of Sheba came to see him and said, I've heard about you from the hearing of the ear. Now I see it. I mean, I haven't been told the half. You have a glorious kingdom. So wealth and might and power and influence there in the Middle East all belonged to Israel at one time. And then the kingdom was taken away from them in the break of the northern and the southern tribes. And then the captivities in Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. And even when Jesus was on the planet, they were under Roman occupation. You can see why they were expecting just return the kingdom. Take us back to what we once were. And it's really important that you understand that the kingdom that the prophets prophesied and that the New Testament Jewish saints were anticipating 
was a kingdom like the kingdom of David, the physical, earthly, literal kingdom. And again, there's nothing in the Bible. Trust me on this one when I tell you. I've read the book. There's nothing in the Bible that would cause you to go, oh, that's an allegorical kingdom now. Suddenly in the mind of all the Israelites who have always had a physical kingdom, who have a literal kingdom to point at, who had a king, who have a throne, suddenly they're expecting a, a magical kingdom. Disney, suddenly they're waiting for a different kind of kingdom. It is a geographical kingdom. He has already told them where it's going to be back in the Abrahamic covenant. He's already said, you're going to have all this land all the way out to the, the river in Egypt, all the way to the great Euphrates. You're going to have all of this land. That's geographical. That's, that's locatable. That's identifiable. So all of the New Testament saints were anticipating this kingdom to come. Go to the book of Luke. I'm going to show you a couple things here in the book of Luke that specifically say that Jesus was the redeemer of Israel. Now, Luke is a Gentile, and he's writing to Theophilus, a Gentile. And this is very, very important, and I think it's overlooked by way too many commentators and preachers. This is a Gentile writing to a Gentile about the Jewish Messiah. And if there was anybody in the New Testament who was going to Gentileize those promises I just made up a word Gentileize if there was anybody who was going to allegorize the kingdom or the reason that Jesus came to the planet Luke's the guy he's the Gentile he's, he's the one who should say I've done the research I've looked into it and here's what I've concluded yet he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts and he continues to say the kingdom belongs to Israel and is a literal, genuine, physical kingdom on planet Earth. So much so that the disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, right away in the book of Luke, let's start at verse 26 of chapter 1. Verse 26, chapter 1 of the book of Luke. Now in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth. We read a bit of this on Sunday, but we're going to go on this morning. The angel Gabriel came to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. So lucky. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, hail favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Okay, now this is Gabriel the angel talking. He's speaking on God's behalf. We got to believe it. We've got to believe that whatever's being said here is exactly what God meant to say. And what God meant to say about Jesus, this baby that's, that's going to be conceived in Mary's womb. He's not even here yet. He's not even conceived yet. You're going to have a baby. You're going to name him Jesus. I keep using the word going to. He's going to, there, I was an English major. I should really enunciate better. I really should. 
he's going to be great. He's going to be the son of God. But specifically, God is going to give him, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the anticipation ever since the Davidic covenant. That's the anticipation all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, that there was going to be a kingdom when God was going to plant Israel and they were never going to be moved again and they were going to have peace from all their surrounding enemies and they were going to have permanent rest. And now we know through whom? Through Christ, through Jesus. Keep reading. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not he's going to reign over the church forever. Yeah, that's true. Yes, he's ruling and reigning over his church. Sure, yes. But we can't eliminate the fact that he rules and reigns over the house of Jacob. Now, what does that phrase mean? The house of Jacob, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. And whenever God wants to speak of Israel, Jacob, in a negative tone, he calls him Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter, just to remind them, who they are. They're not exalted. They're not prince after God's own heart. They're not Israel. They're Jacob. But the house, okay, well, you're going to be more familiar than we are here in America. Here in America, our governmental system is a, a democratic republic, or so they tell us. But in the European countries, you have kings and queens that are actually part of a house like the house of Windsor and the house of Tudor. That's the way the language is being used here. The house of David and the house of Jacob, that particular lineage and that group of people, the same way that there was the house of Judah and the house of Israel, the northern and southern tribes, this is very specific language. He is going to rule over the house of Jacob. Notice that he did not say, the house of Israel or the house of Judah because in the Old Testament that's real specific language for the northern or southern tribes but collectively they're the house of Jacob Jesus is going to rule over the house of Jacob and the whole time he was on the planet the house of Jacob was still scattered and the whole time he was on the planet even though Isaiah said unto us a son is born unto us a child is given and the government will be upon his shoulders. He still never took up the reins of government. This is something that is predicted of him time and time again, that he is going to rule on David's throne over the house of Jacob forever. There's that forever kingdom now. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, head of gold, the sides of silver, the belly and the sides of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, the ten-toed kingdom. Remember all of that. Well, it's very specific that when the stone kingdom comes and crushes that idol, he sets up a kingdom that endures forever. Now the angel Gabriel says, let me tell you about that Daniel kingdom. It's that kingdom that lasts forever. And he's the stone that's coming to establish the kingdom that lasts forever. And who's he a king over? The house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Skip down to verse 46. This is known in some circles as the Magnificat. Mary said, this is after Mary visits with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, the child that was in me leapt for joy, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. And he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as he spoke to Abraham and his offspring forever. So now Mary, moved by the Holy Spirit, recognizes that the holy thing within her, the holy child in her that's going to be born, is going to be the deliverance of Israel. He has given help to Israel, his servant, and in remembrance of his mercy, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. That's why I said Sunday morning that the kingdom concept starts at Abraham, because the kingdom fulfillment is the fulfillment of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. And because it's unconditional, nobody can mess it up. Even Israel, when they got the conditional law from Moses, they messed that up. As soon as there's a condition placed on you, you're going to mess it up. But the unconditional one is a covenant that God is going to establish based on his own faithfulness to himself and his own word and his own promises. Unilateral. Unilateral. Keep going. He spoke that to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Oh, by the way, this phrase, he gave help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. Keep your finger right here in Luke for just a second. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. Now, Sunday morning, I read a little bit of Isaiah to you. We started at the end of chapter 44. I want to go earlier in chapter 44 now to show you where Mary got this language. Mary's getting this language straight from Isaiah. So Isaiah the prophet has already predicted that God is going to send a help to the nation of Israel because they are his servant. And by the way, as you know, the history of Israel, and we're at the point now where they're in the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities as we're making our way through the Old Testament. Do they seem like a servant? Do they seem like the servant of God? While they're chasing their foreign gods, while they're in their captivity and while they're ignoring God's Sabbaths, while they're breaking his law, while they're doing everything they can to be contrary to God, do they feel like his servant? Well, why are they referred to as his servant, both here and by Mary? Because God chooses them. And so they are ultimately going to be his servant redounding to his grace and his glory the same way you are. Because I know some of you pretty well. And if somebody said, name a servant of God, I'm not jumping right up and naming your names. 
let's be honest, at my age, I'm not jumping right up no matter what. I had to be the laziest servant he ever And you're not jumping either. Isaiah 44, we're going to start at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob. Okay, so who is Isaiah talking to? The house of Jacob, the ones over whom Jesus is going to be king. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Remarkable, because by the time Isaiah is prophesying, the northern tribes, the Jacob of Israel have apostatized and have chased their foreign gods and have set up altars and shrines and Ishtars and everything that they could possibly do to offend a righteous holy God who has said, you'll have no other gods before me. They've gone chasing all their foreign gods and yet through Isaiah, God calls them my servant. Why? Because I have formed you. You are my servant. See that? In other words, God is not going to leave them in their rebellious state. Or else God would have to admit he failed. He chose a people. He elected a people. He separated a people. And he said, these are my consecrated people. They rebelled. And then God would have to say, oops, I tried. I didn't know Jeff would be like that. I tried to save Jeff. But no, the reason that Jeff can feel genuinely saved is because it's not up to him. It's up to the eternal power of a glorious and gracious God who is in the enterprise of saving his own people. So he could say to Israel, I formed you. I made you my servant. That's why I can continue to refer to you as my servant. And Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And yet they seemed, especially in the Assyrian captivity, and then the scattering, they seemed completely forgotten by God. God says, I haven't forgotten you. Why could he say that? Because there's a kingdom coming. And there's going to be the regathering of the 12 tribes and the establishment of the throne of David and David's greater son on that throne. And they're going to rest in their land that God has given them in perpetuity. Are you getting a feel for this? Am I just becoming repetitive? Am I just becoming redundant? Am I just saying the same thing over and over? O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Look at verse 22. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Okay, so now all Israel is waiting for the Redeemer of Israel. Very specific language. The Redeemer of Israel. We're going to see in the New Testament in just a moment that he is called the Redeemer of Israel because the promise is right here. The expectation is right here. But look at God saying, I've wiped out your transgressions and your sins. The folks who say that God is finished with Israel all make the same argument. The, the argument across the board is the same. 
they say God gave Israel a chance. He gave them the law, and had they done the law, he would have redeemed them based on the law. But they rebelled, but they chased their foreign gods. They sinned against God. Therefore, God started over with the church, and he's done with Israel because Israel sinned. And they're in transgression against God, so God is done with Israel. Anybody who can say that simply has not read their Bible. They don't know themselves very well either. And they don't know themselves very well. Because if God operates like that, what hope do you have? That's like David saying, if you counted sin, who's going to survive that? Your sins and your transgressions are going to be removed. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. What is that saying? And why would anyone say anything else? Why would anybody come to a different conclusion than that? I can answer my own question. Because their system doesn't work with that chapter. And so because their system doesn't allow God to say that, they have to ignore that. But if you just read it for what it says, God seems very big on the idea, I have chosen these people, so I'm going to redeem these people, and I'm going to establish these people, and I've made a promise to Abraham, and I made a promise to David, and I'm going to bring about the kingdom, and I'm going to give them all that land that I promised to Abraham that they've never occupied. I haven't done all that stuff yet, but it's an unconditional promise that God has to do because he said so. And if you don't believe that God is going to do all that based on he said so, then you can have no confidence whatsoever that he's going to do for you what he said he's going to do for you just because he said so. Right? Yeah. Am I alone up here? No, right. Okay. For thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself, and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of the boasters to fail, making fools out of the diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, conforming the word of his servant and performing the purposes of his messengers. Do you see what that verse is saying? I sent you messengers, I sent you prophets, and they spoke my word, and I'm going to perform the word they spoke. Because I sent them to say it, now that they've said it, I'm going to do it. Performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins it is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, 
and he will perform all my desire. And that gets into the part we read on Sunday and the predictions of Cyrus 150 years in advance. Go back to the book of Luke. Now you know where Mary is getting some of this language. That God is going to send a help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance. God is going to remember that he promised that. All the way back to Abraham, he promised it. And because he promised it, he'll remember it. And then out of his mercy, he's going to do it because he's going to forgive their transgressions and their sins. Isn't that wonderful? If it sounds familiar, it's Paul in Romans 11 talking about, and then all Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He then says, and then all Israel will be saved, and then he defines what he means by all Israel. And he says, as touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes, you Gentiles. So God knows he's talking about Israel, rebellious Israel. He knows he's talking about those that are enemies of the gospel. And the very next thing Paul says is, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's made the unconditional promise. Having made the unconditional promise, their sin and their rebellion can't change God's mind. And aren't you glad that's true? Yes. We would never have figured that out. It had to be revealed. It had to be said. We would never have figured that out, which is why Paul gets to the end of Romans, and, or Romans 11 and says, you know, who knows the mind of God? Who would have figured this out? Okay, let's move quickly. We're back in Luke 1. It might be too late to work quickly. Start at Luke 1, 67. This is about John the Baptist and his father, Zacharias. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. So, whatever he says next is right from the Holy Spirit. We don't get to argue with it. This is not a man giving us his interpretation or his private prophecy. Or This, this is straight from the Holy Spirit. Luke takes the time to tell us that it's straight from the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Remember, this is a Gentile writing to Gentiles. And he says... Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. In that context, who are his people? It's not the church. Gentiles aren't even introduced to this yet. But look what John says by the Holy Spirit. God has visited Israel and he accomplished redemption for his people just like Isaiah said. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, look at the next line, in the house of David, his servant. There's that Davidic covenant language again. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, saying, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. There's the Abrahamic connection. So notice he mentioned David, because he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's the seed of David, he's the promised lineage of David, and he's come and redeemed Israel because of the promise God made to Abraham. And if you don't know your Old Testament, you don't know what this stuff means. 
It, it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's all wah, 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 wah. You're, you're not going to understand what's being said here. But all that John is saying by the Holy Spirit at this point is the Old Testament's true. <laughs> Everything the prophets have said, that's true. And now God is doing it in Christ. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. And what does that oath result in? Verse 74, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. Now, you just all a moment ago when I said, now, who are the who, his people in this context? You all said Israel. Hasn't changed. To give the knowledge of salvation to Israel. That's why Jesus came. Are we included? Well, yeah. Are we adopted? Well, yeah. Do we get redeemed too? Well, yeah, but that's grace, 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 grace. Amen. They're being saved. Because of a promise God made to Abraham. That's their surety. And because of a promise that God made to David that his greater son was going to sit on his throne and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are Israel's promises. So of course God is doing that. But there are no similar promises that say, oh, and, and uh, Israel and Steve. Until the new covenant comes around and fulfills and satisfies that part of the Abrahamic covenant that says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, there's the Gentile inclusion. Look at verse 77. I know I already read the first part of it, but look at the second part, because this is why Jesus came to the planet to redeem Israel, to die for their sins, and thank God for ours to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Now, that's New Testament. We read it out of Isaiah, Old Testament, that said God was going to forgive their trespasses and their sins. Now, here is Zacharias talking about the Holy Spirit, saying that the reason Jesus is coming to the planet is to forgive his people Israel, to bring salvation to them by the forgiveness of their sins. So where exactly is the theology that says God is done with Israel because they sinned? He's done with Israel because they rebelled. He's done with Israel because they didn't keep the law. Okay, right, I agree. They're sinful, they're awful, they're no good. I agree. I don't know what just happened to my voice. I, just, I think I just went through puberty. And it's about time. It really is. <laughs> By the forgiveness of their sins, he's going to bring the knowledge of salvation because of the tender mercy of our God. That's the whole point. By his tender mercy, by his grace, by his kindness, he's going to redeem the otherwise irredeemable. He's going to save the otherwise unsavable so that in the establishment of the kingdom in the new Jerusalem, all the glory, all the honor is going to go to him and to his son and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. 
That is going to happen because God in great mercy sent his son in order to save those people that God has chosen and elected. And that starts at Israel and then includes us. And a far too many people in the church think it starts with us. And then if Jews and Israelites will just choose Jesus and join the church, then they can be saved too. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Israel will be saved because of God's promises and his faithfulness to his own word. And he is going to forgive their sin because of his own tender mercy. And then we get included. Don't get that backwards. Yes, sir. Forgive my old ears, but will David rule in the kingdom or will the Lord Jesus Christ rule in the kingdom or will they both rule? I'm going to go with it's going to be Jesus Christ ruling. And because he is the son of David, of the lineage of David, he is sometimes referred to as David. The same way that David is called his father, when in fact it's his great, 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 great thousand years of great father. He's still referred to as his father. So I I cannot conclude anything other than it's Christ who's going to rule. Now, since Israel is going to be raised up, is David going to be raised up too? I think I could argue that he is going to be. Could he be a prince ruling under Christ? Sure. And it seems to say that. But the ruler is Christ. Yeah. All right, keep going. I'm not done yet. I'm not even out of the first chapter of Luke. Chapter 2. Start at verse 8 of the book of Luke. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you, these are Jewish shepherds, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. The Savior for you is born in the city of David. Wasn't that lucky? I mean, what were the chances? What were the chances that God, who's in charge of absolutely everything, would make sure that there would be a Roman census at exactly that moment so that the Virgin Mary, who suddenly is pregnant with the child of God, and she's nine months pregnant, but she's in Nazareth. And ever since the prophecy of Micah saying that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem specifically, and she's up in Nazareth. How am I going to get her to Bethlehem? She's in her ninth month. Taxation. Everybody has to go to their ancestral hometown in order to be counted for the taxation and the census. And that gets her back to Bethlehem because she and her husband are both descendants of David. They end up in Jerusalem. That's really sovereign God. Keep going. Chapter 2, starting at verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Okay, so whatever he says now, we know this is the Holy Spirit talking, and he was looking for specifically language you find in the Old Testament referring to the Messiah as the consolation of Israel. It doesn't mean he was looking for Israel to be consoled. There, there, I understand. 
That's not what he was looking for. He was looking for the one who was going to be the consolation of Israel, specifically. So he was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took the baby into his arms and he blessed God. And he said, now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And too many people stop right there. A light to the Gentiles. Finally, hey, we got to the Gentile part. Which, by the way, this is why Luke was writing to Theophilus. This is why Luke was telling Theophilus, the Jewish Messiah, who is the Son of God, has included us. Faith in Christ. Results in salvation. Faith in the Jewish Messiah. That's why he's writing. But notice that he keeps it in the proper context. It's all Israel's promise. We just get included. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. That's the part that people don't read on into. Remember what it was that Simeon was specifically in the temple waiting for. The consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit told him that he wasn't going to die till he saw the Christ, the consolation of Israel. And then he lifted up the baby and said, I can die now. I've seen the consolation of Israel. Who's going to be a light to the Gentiles? Yeah. But he is also the glory of thy people, Israel. I believe they'll have a special, a special recognition somehow in the kingdom, the Jews. Well, wait, we're getting there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did I say I'm done? No, no, no. Go ahead. I don't want to. <laughs> and his father and his mother were amazed at these things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And the sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving day and night with fastings and with prayers. And at the very moment, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the language is consistent. The language is constant. Jesus came specifically to be the redemption, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the satisfaction and consolation of Israel and the light to the Gentiles. And if we don't see it that way, if we don't read it that way, we're just going to end up confused. Can you see now why it is that Jesus' disciples would say to him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Mm -hmm. 
You didn't do it before you died. But you died, and you're back. You're like the best king ever. <laughs> you did that feeding the 5,000 thing. We could have food every day. Nobody has to work, and they can't kill our king. Do the kingdom thing. And his answer, which is just so very, very important, his answer is, it's not up to you to know. He didn't say to them, guys, I've been with you 40 days talking about the kingdom. Don't you understand that I've changed the definition of kingdom now? I've allegorized it. I've made it a spiritual kingdom in the church. He doesn't say any of that. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons the Father has placed in his own hands, which is just a long way of saying, well, not yet. It's going to happen, but not yet. The word kingdom appears 125 times in the Synoptic Gospels. It occurs in the book of Acts. I just talked to you about that, that he spoke to them for 40 days concerning the things of the kingdom. Their expectation is that he was going to bring about the kingdom. In the book of Acts, there are five different references to the disciples of Jesus preaching very specifically the kingdom of God. And that's even after the death, burial, and resurrection. They're still talking about the kingdom of God because it's very specifically the Jewish promise. Paul mentioned the kingdom of God five times to the Corinthians, once to the Romans and once to the Galatians, the kingdom of Christ and God to the Ephesians, once to the Colossians, as well as the phrase, the kingdom of his beloved son, his kingdom and his glory in 1 Thessalonians. It appears that Paul expected the kingdom to appear future to him. In Acts 14, starting at verse 19, we read, but the Jews came from Antioch and from Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He did not say, ever since Jesus died and hung on the cross, the kingdom's now. That's the classic amillennial position. But he always spoke of the kingdom as coming. The future kingdom. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. So the anticipation is still kingdom to come. I know I pointed it out on Sunday morning, but it's worth pointing out again when Jesus' disciples said, teach us to pray. He said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, your name is hallowed. Your name is holy, separate. Hallowed be thy name. First petition, thy kingdom come. Okay, how do you pray that if the kingdom's here? Mm -hmm. And listen to how he described, Jesus himself described the kingdom. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. He put the kingdom on earth so that the will of God would be done on earth the way it is in heaven. Is that, 
in any sense an allegorical or spiritual kingdom? I think not. Hebrews 12.28, this is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. He says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, only a Hebrew writing to Hebrews can say that, still anticipating and looking forward to the kingdom. Since we will receive this kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's what we've seen all the way back to Daniel, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. James, also writing to the scattered tribes. James, a Hebrew, writing to a Hebrew scattered audience, says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So what does all that have to do with Sunday morning? Well, it was Jesus saying, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it new with you in the kingdom. So there's an anticipatory sense to, to what we did on Sunday. There's certainly an eschatological fulfillment of the kingdom still waiting to be accomplished. And all the way through the Old Testament and well into the Gospels and into the New Testament, we see the very, very consistent language of the kingdom belonging to Israel. So am I, am I preaching two different ways of salvation? Because right now there's somebody typing in all capital letters, <laughs> sending me an email saying, you're saying what the old dispensationalist said, that there's two ways of salvation, one for Israel and one for the church. Stop typing. Because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen. I'm just saying what the Bible says. I'm saying that in Christ, there's a kingdom coming. And in Christ, there's a catching away of the church coming. And in Christ, there's a new Jerusalem coming. Oh, yeah, a minute ago, I yelled at you and said, what am I finished? Here, let's read it. Turn to the book of Revelation, and then we're done for the night. I appreciate your patience, but we got a late start because we sang first, and that's Danielle's fault. Remember on Sunday morning, we looked at Jesus saying, my father grants me a kingdom, so I'm going to grant you a kingdom. You're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So who's going to be in the kingdom? The 12 tribes of Israel. Otherwise, there's no point to the promise you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But look at Revelation 21. This is also, a, this is after the Revelation 20 stuff, and we can argue about the millennium and the thousand years. No, we won't even argue. I'll just say it, and you'll agree. At least you'll agree. And then in Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem coming. And he carried me away, starting in verse 10, Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to God. It's not insignificant, by the way, that that's not Boston. It's not insignificant that that's not Denver or Buenos Aires or pick a city in Australia. I'm stumped. In Queensland, it doesn't say any other city than Jerusalem. And this is after the Revelation 20 stuff. This is after chapter 19, where we're in the marriage supper of the Lamb, getting the white robes that we return with. This is after all that, God's emphasis is still Jerusalem. 
and that's significant. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, on the 12 gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of of Israel. Okay, there you go. You're in allegory. allegory. Okay, thank you. You're at the end of the book of Revelation. We started at Genesis and Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. You get to the end of the book of Revelation, and God's talking about Jerusalem and 12 tribes of Israel. It'd be 12 gates, 12 names, 12 tribes. Now, do you think that those 12 names of those 12 tribes in new, specifically Jerusalem, are a reference to the church? No, they're a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. How obvious is that? That the words 12 tribes of Israel mean 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. God just keeps talking about Israel. But then look, this is the great part. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the foundation is the apostles. And that's the introduction of all the teaching of the New Testament, the New Covenant, and the and the infilling of the church and the coming in of the Gentiles, that's all, the, all of the apostle stuff. But the city has 12 gates because I keep saying it's all through Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Israel or whether we're talking about the church. We're still talking about through Jesus. I'm not talking about two different ways or two now, different methods. It's built on the 12 tribes, but it's built on the apostle stuff. It's built on the foundation, but the 12 tribes are the gates of the entrance and the leaving. Yeah. Yes, sir, Alex. Have you ever read any? tried to explain how they could mention the 12 tribes in Revelation, but that somehow Israel's already been dumped and set aside. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. What are they? Yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes. Affirmative. Absolutely. Danger, Will Robinson. Yes. And you know what they do? The 144,000 are the church. Yeah, it's easy. And remember the 24 elders? They're the church. And then the references to the 12 tribes of Israel? That's the church. Yeah. All you do is deny what the Bible says, and you make up whatever fits with your system. And that's why we don't do systems. Because unless we believe what it says, there's no other document on planet Earth that I can think of and certainly no day-to-day -day document that you encounter. A letter from a friend or a book on mathematics or a, you know, a plumbing book or something or how electricity works or something like that. There's no other book on the planet that people refuse to read genuinely and literally the way they do the Bible. I mean, if, if, if it's a book about heart surgery, you're going to pay attention to the words because you want to know about heart surgery. You mean like it becomes a fable? 
Yeah, but when it comes to the Bible, for some reason, rather than reading what it says and then adapting their thinking to what the Bible says, they just twist the words, which we've been reading in Peter, that they're unlearned and foolish men who twist the word of God. And they do that in ways that astound me because I think if you did that with any other book, you're going to come up with pandemonium. And yet people are comfortable doing it with the Bible. And I just disagree vehemently. Oh, I don't just disagree. I disagree vehemently. I stomp my feet. No, no. Yes, sir. I'll coin a new phrase. Please do. Judeo-Christian tradition. I don't know that that's a new phrase. Maybe it's not. <laughs> it seems to a lot of people it is. Yeah, so much of the Bible seems like tradition to people and fables, like Alex said, and just made-up stories or, or, or an opportunity for you to uh, plant yourself right in the middle of it and make it all about you. But that's not what the Bible says. All right, you've been very patient. Thanks for letting me keep you this late. Yes, Micah. Oh, sure, go ahead. But I'm pretty much done. You go ahead. The, uh, well, we understand the kingdom in Revelation 20 and 21. Is it proper to understand it, as you just talked about, in the eternal state, the new Jerusalem, in Revelation 20, as well as uh, Revelation uh, 20, or Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, or the millennium in Revelation 20? Is the kingdom millennium and the new Jerusalem or is it just the new Jerusalem I got your question now remember like an hour ago I said Christ is yes sitting on a throne right now every time God is represented he's sitting on a throne he's a ruler he's a king he's a sovereign Christ is sitting at the right hand of God he's ruling so in that sense if you were to ask me well, is he a king on the throne and is he ruling over the planet right now and over his entire universe right now? I would have to say, yeah, yeah, he is the king of that. When New Jerusalem comes and there's no more sun because he gives light to the New Jerusalem and everyone's occupied with the worship of God, is he going to be worshipped as a ruler, as a king? I would have to say, yeah. But specifically Israel's promised prophesied kingdom seems to come to its fruition during the millennium. And if you're paying close attention to the way the book of Revelation works, the new age that Jesus kept talking about, the amillennialists love to talk about the two-age model. And they love to say, Jesus talked about this age and the age to come. Like when he talked about marriage, that men are marrying, given to marriage, but in the age to come, there will be no marriage. Okay, there's this age and the age to come. And based on that, they say when Jesus comes back, we enter the age to come, and then they say, so there's no room for a thousand years literally on the planet, except that the age to come isn't mentioned in the book of Revelation until chapter 21. The millennium is in this age. So if you're talking about a two-age model, there's still plenty of room for a thousand-year kingdom. There has to be a space of time where all these promises made through all the prophets all the way back to Abraham, it has to come to fruition on the planet at some point. And the most obvious place is the thousand years that occurs after the church is gone. That's 
It's just the most obvious place to put it. Now, this is a general rule of mine, that if you're going to ask me about things to come and what's the timing and what are the specifics, my answer is always, I can tell you the minute it happens. I can tell you exactly what it's about. But the information we're given in the Bible seems to point to the reason for the thousand years is that there's a kingdom and Christ is going to rule on the planet during that kingdom. So is he a king in the kingdom? Yes. Is he a king in New Jerusalem? Yes. Is he a king in heaven? Yes. Unfortunately, people say he's a king in heaven and he's going to be a king in New Jerusalem, so we'll get rid of the kingdom for Israel. That's the mistake. Does that make How sense? How do you reconcile that with when we just read that the kingdom that he promised is a kingdom without end, promised to Israel? Yeah. So that's a thousand years. No, I, w- I would say that's the new Jerusalem because it's specifically okay. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, that that's going to be the ultimate kingdom, the kingdom without end. Which includes a city that has 12 gates named for the 12 tribes of Israel right. and foundations right. named for the 12 apostles. Yeah. So there's still some distinction in this. Still some distinction. Yeah. I, I agree completely. Still some distinction. New Jerusalem is not the same thing as the thousand year. No. No. Chapter 20 versus chapter 21. Two different things. They run concurrently, but it's two different things. Because after the thousand years, there has to be a period that Peter writes about where there's the conflagration, where the elements of this world burn up, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth. Then you get new Jerusalem and the kingdom without end. Yeah. Yes, sir. So the Jews that I know today, they, when they die, they're going to be raised from the dead and come back and live as saved people because they're Jews? I would argue, since Jesus said to specific Jews since he said to those who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit, he said that's not going to be forgiven in this age or the age to come. This is never going to be forgiven. So obviously not all Jews are going to end up being saved. However, all 12 tribes have to be represented and saved. Paul talks about remnant language, especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He talks about the Israel that is the remnant. And he even hearkens back to Elijah saying, I'm left alone. There's only me, and they seek my life. And God said, there's 7,000 I've kept who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've kept them to myself. Well, okay, he, he's, he's always had that remnant concept, but the remnant is going to represent all 12 tribes. So I cannot say that every Jew is going to be saved. But having said that, I also have to say, if you go back and you look at Ezekiel 37, 39, pick one. Oh, good. You don't even know what I'm going to say yet. (laughs) That's like, good. Oh, the dry bones. God's interpretation of the valley of dry bones. She was right. See that? God's interpretation of the valley of dry bones is, this is the whole house of Israel, which I will raise up on the last day. They'll know that I'm God when I bring them up out of their graves. So, so yeah. And especially if it's true that the book of Revelation written by John, and John is an apostle to the Jews specifically, people miss that, and he writes Revelation to a Jewish audience if the church is gone, and he says that there's a thousand years that starts with a resurrection, well, that fits exactly what Ezekiel 37 says. Some Jews that didn't Remember what I said about Romans 11, and go read it that Paul says, as touching the gospel, 
That's that accepting Jesus thing you were asking about. As touching the gospel, they're enemies. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. And then if you go to the book of uh, Zechariah, Zechariah writes about Christ coming back and that they are going to weep. The Jews are going to weep over him. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced, very specific language, and they're going to weep as a mother weeps over her only son, and he's going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on them. So the same way that you didn't go looking for God, and you didn't accept Jesus, but God came to you and saved you, He's going to do the same thing for Israel nationally at some point. Now, does that mean every Israelite, every Jew? I would have to say no, because Jesus has already told us some Jews cannot ever be forgiven. But is it going to be all 12 tribes? Well, yes, it has to be. So the Jews that blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it won't be them. As for the rest of them, we just don't know. It's yeah. It's In the end, it's going to be God's election. Yeah. And you know what I'm going to say to that? I'm going to say that's not my jurisdiction. I'm going to say that's up to God. Including the ones, if I may be so bold as to get a little contradictory, uh, or controversial, not contradictory, I'm sorry, wrong word. Contradict me, where are you going to live? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, be controversial, go ahead. Uh, What about the Jews that follow the Talmud and the teachings of that? Because from what I see... Well, I think that's what... Dwayne was asking about. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. there's a lot of very blasphemous things. I can answer that by saying they have denied Christ, so then there's that part of me that wants to, across the board, say, well, then they've joined all the other people on the earth who have denied Christ, and you know, you're going to die once, and then the judgment. But the truth is, because there's all these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of what Paul wrote after the cross about the Jews being enemies of the gospel for the Gentiles' sake, I'm going to say that that's God's jurisdiction, not mine. If he chooses to save those people, forgive their sins, like we read out of Isaiah, pour out the grace and supplication on them, he's welcome to do that. That's up to him. But... Now, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, the synagogue of Satan among the Jews, yeah, I, I'm sure that those are blasphemers who even Jesus said were whitewashed sepulchers, dead men. So that language in Matthew 23 that he uses on the Pharisees is very condemnatory. Yes, sir? This might support what you're saying. Um, or might not. In Romans 3, 21 to 26, it talks about the sins that were passed over yeah. the, prior to the appearing of Christ. Right. They did not know Christ. They did not put their faith in Christ. They weren't even good Israelites. And God forgave much of the sin on the basis of what Christ ended up doing. Based on being beloved for the Father's sake, that could account for quite a bit of seemingly out-of-the-box salvation. That you know. So that's why I think, I think you're wise in saying that. Let me give you the big answer. The big answer is I believe that the blood atonement of Christ is sufficient to save absolutely everybody that God intends to save, Jew or Gentile. And I don't know who all those people are, but either did Elijah. So I I really think it's necessary as much as we can teach biblical doctrine, as much as we can say what the Bible does say, I got to be careful not to wander into areas that he didn't give me the authority to wander into. Make sense? But the blood of Christ is sufficient 
that God can save anybody he wants. And he didn't give us the, he didn't give humans the job of judging. Yeah. It's all turned over to Jesus. It's late. Thank you for hanging out. I'm glad that you were all here. So say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Say goodbye to yourself. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.